Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspapermen, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country, and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and today we'll be returning to one of the books that we have read quite a bit from through the course of the last year. Um, we're going to return to The Passing of the Frontier by Emerson Howe. In the past, we had read several chapters from this, including... The Frontier in History, The Range, The Cattle Trails, The Cowboy, The Mines, and The Pathways of the West. So in all, we had read chapters 1 through 6. Today, we'll be reading chapter 7, The Indian Wars. So, without further ado, Emerson Howe, The Passing of the Frontier, Chapter 7, The Indian Wars. It might well be urged against the method that was employed in these pages, that although we undertook to speak of the last American frontier, all that we really thus far have done has been to describe a series of frontiers from the Missouri westward. In part, this is true. But it was precisely in this large, loose, and irregular fashion that we actually arrived at our last frontier. Certainly, our westbound civilization never advanced by any steady or regular progress. It would be a singularly illuminating map, and one which I wish we might show, which would depict in different colors the great occupied areas of the West, with the earliest dates of their final and permanent occupation. Such a map as this would show us that the last frontier of America was overlapped and left behind not once, but a score of times. The land between the Missouri and the Rockies, along the Great Plains and the high foothills, was crossed over and forgotten by the men who were forging into farther countries in search of lands where fortune was swift and easy. California, Oregon, all early farming and timbering lands of the distant northwest, these lay far beyond the plains. And, as we have noted, they were sought for, even before gold was dreamed of upon the Pacific Slope. 
So here, somewhere between the Missouri and the Rockies, lay our last frontier. Wavering, receding, advancing, gaining and losing. Changing a little more every decade. And at last, so rapidly changed as to be outworn and abolished in one swift decade all its own. This unsettled land, so long held in small repute by the early Americans, was, as we have pointed out, the Buffalo Range and the country of the Horse Indians, the Plains tribes who lived upon the Buffalo. For a long time it was this Indian population which held back the white settlements of Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. But as men began to work farther and farther westward in search of homes in Oregon or in quest of gold in California or Idaho or Montana, the Indian question came to be a serious one. To the Army, soon after the Civil War, fell the task of exterminating, or at least evicting, the savage tribes over all this unvalued and unknown Middle West. This was a process not altogether simple. For a considerable time, the Indians themselves were able to offer very effective resistance to the enterprise. They were accustomed to living upon that country and did not need to bring in their own supplies. Hence, the army fought them at a certain disadvantage. In sooth, the army had to learn to become half Indian before it could fight the Indians on anything like even terms. We seem not so much to have coveted the lands in the first Indian fighting days. We fought rather for the trails than for the soil. The Indians themselves had lived there all their lives, had conquered their environment, and were happy in it. They made a bitter fight, nor are they to be blamed for doing so. The greatest of our Indian wars have taken place since our own civil war, and perhaps the most notable of all the battles are those which were fought on the old cow range in the land of our last frontier. We do not lack abundant records of this time of our history. Soon after the civil war, the railroads began edging out into the plains. They brought, besides many new settlers, an abundance of chroniclers and historians and writers of hectic fiction or supposed fact. A multitude of books came out at this time of our history, most of which were accepted as truth. That was the time when we set up as Wild West heroes, rough skin-clad hunters and so-called scouts, each of whom was allowed to tell his own story and to have it accepted at par. As a matter of fact, at about the time the army had succeeded in subduing the last of the Indian tribes on the Buffalo Range, the most of our Wild West history at least so far as concerned the boldest adventure, was a thing of the past. It was easy to write of a past which everyone now was too new, too ignorant, or too busy, critically, to remember. Even as early as 1866, Colonel Marcy, an experienced army officer and Indian fighter, took the attitude of writing about a vanishing phase of American life in his Army Life on the Border. He says, quote, I have been persuaded by many friends that the contents of the book which is herewith presented to the public are not without value as records of a fast vanishing age and as truthful sketches of men of various races whose memory will shortly depend only on romance unless someone who knew them shall undertake to leave outlines of their peculiar characteristics. I am persuaded that excuse may be found in the simple fact that that all these people of my description, men, conditions of life, 
races of aboriginal inhabitants and adventurous hunters and pioneers are passing away. A few years more and the prairie will be transformed into farms. The mountain ravines will be abodes of busy manufacturers and the gigantic power of American civilization will have taken possession of the land from the great river of the West to the very shores of the Pacific. The world is filling up fast. I trust I am not an error when I venture to place some value, however small, on everything which goes to form the truthful history of a condition of men incident to the advance of civilization over the continent. A condition which forms peculiar types of character, breeds remarkable developments of human nature. A condition, also, which can hardly again exist on this or any other continent, and which has, therefore, a special value in the sum of human history. End quote. Such words as the foregoing bespeak a large and dignified point of view. No one who follows Marcy's pages can close them without anything but respect and admiration. It is in books such as this, then, that we may find something about the last stages of the clearing of the frontier. Even in Marcy's times, the question of the government's Indian policy was a mooted one. He himself, as an army officer, looked at the matter philosophically, but his estimate of conditions was exact. Long ago as he wrote, his conclusions were such as might have been given 40 years later. Again, from Marcy. The limits of their accustomed range are rapidly contracting, and their means of subsistence undergoing a corresponding diminution. The white man is advancing with rapid strides upon all sides of them, and they are forced to give way to his encroachments. The time is not far distant when the buffalo will become extinct, and they will then be compelled to adopt some other mode of life than the chase for subsistence. No man will quietly submit to starvation when food is within his reach, and if he cannot obtain it honestly, he will steal it or take it by force. If, therefore, we do not induce them to engage in agricultural avocations, we shall, in a very few years, have before us the alternative of exterminating them or fighting them perpetually. That they are destined ultimately to extinction does not, in my mind, admit of a doubt. For the reasons above mentioned, it may at first be necessary for our government to assert its authority over them by a prompt and vigorous exercise of the military arm. The tendency of the policy I have indicated will be to assemble these people in communities where they will be more readily controlled, and I predict from it the most gratifying results." End quote. Another well-informed army officer, Colonel Richard Dodge, himself a hunter, a trailer, and a rider, able to compete with the Indians in their own fields, penetrated to the heart of the Indian problem when he wrote, quote, The conception of Indian character is almost impossible to a man who has passed the greater portion of his life surrounded by the influences of a cultivated, refined, and moral society. The truth is simply too shocking, and the revolted mind takes refuge in the disbelief as the less painful horn of the dilemma. As a first step towards an understanding of his character, we must get at his standpoint of morality. As a child, he is not brought up. From the dawn of intelligence, his own will is his law. There is no right and no wrong in him. 
No dread of punishment restrains him from any act that boyish fun or fury may prompt. No lessons inculcating the beauty and sure reward of goodness or the hideous and certain punishment of vice are ever wasted on him. The men by whom he is surrounded and to whom he looks as models for his future life are great and renowned just in proportion to their ferocity, to the scalps they have taken, to the thefts they have committed. His earliest boyish memory is probably a dance of rejoicing over the scalps of strangers, all of whom he is taught to regard as enemies. The lessons of his mother awaken only a desire to take his place as soon as possible in fight and foray. The instruction of his father is only such as is calculated to fit him best to act a prominent part in the chase, in theft, and in murder. Virtue, morality, generosity, honor are words not only absolutely without significance to him, but are not accurately translatable into any Indian language on the plains. End quote. These are sterner, less kindly, less philosophic words than Marcy's. But they keenly outline the duty of the army on the frontier. We made treaties with the Indians and broke them. In turn, men such as these Indians might well be expected to break their treaties also, and they did. Unhappily, our Indian policy at that time was one of mingled ferocity and wheedling. The Indians did not understand us any more than we did them. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. When we withdrew some of the old frontier posts from the old hunting range, the action was construed by the tribesmen as an admission that we feared them, and they acted upon that idea. In one point of view, they had right with them, for now we were moving out into the last of the great buffalo country. Their war was one of desperation, whereas ours was one of conquest. No better and no worse than all of the wars of conquest by which the strong have taken the possessions of the weak. Our army, at the close of the Civil War and at the beginning of the wars with the Plains tribes, was in better condition than it had ever been since that day. It was made up of the soundest and best-seasoned soldiers that ever fought under our flag, and at that time it represented a greater proportion of our fighting strength than it ever has before or since. In 1860, the regular army, not counting the volunteer forces, was 16,000. In 1870, it was 37,000, one soldier to each 1,000 of our population. Against this force, pioneers of the vaster advancing army of peaceful settlers, now surging west, there was arrayed practically all the population of fighting tribes such as the Sioux, the two bands of the Cheyennes, the Assiniboines, the Arapahoes, the Kiowas, the Comanches, and the Apaches. These were the leaders of many other tribes in savage campaigns which set the land aflame from the Rio Grande to our northern line. The Sioux and the Cheyennes were more especially the leaders. 
and they always did what they could to enlist the aid of the lesser warlike tribes such as the Crows, the Snakes, the Bannocks, and the Utes. Indeed, all of the savage or semi-civilized tribes which had hung on the flanks of the traffic of the westbound trail. The Sioux, then, at the height of their power, were distinguished by many warlike qualities. They fought hard and were quick to seize upon any signs of weakness in their enemies. When we, in the course of our own civil war, had withdrawn some of our upper posts, the Sioux edged in at once and pressed back the whites quite to the eastern confines of the plains. When we were locked in the death grip of that civil war in 1862, they rose in one savage wave of rebellion of their own and massacred with the most horrible ferocity not less than 644 whites in Minnesota and South Dakota. When General Sibley went out among them on his later punitive campaign, he had his hands full for many a long and weary day. Events following the close of the Civil War did not mend matters in the Indian situation. The railroads had large land grants given to them along their lines, and they began to offer these lands for sale to settlers. Soldier scrip entitling the holder to locate on public lands now began to float about. Some of the engineers, even some of the laborers upon the railroads, seeing how really feasible was the settlement of these plains, began to edge out and to set up their homes, usually not far from the railway lines. All this increase in the number of the white population not only infuriated the Indians the more, but gave them the better chance to inflict damage upon our people. Our army, therefore, became very little more than a vast body of police, and it was always afoot with the purpose of punishing these offending tribesmen, who knew nothing of the higher laws of war, and who committed atrocities that have never been equaled in history. The last great struggle for the occupation of the frontier was on. It involved the ownership of the last of our open lands, and hence may be called the war of our last frontier. The settler who pushed west continued to be the man who shared his time between his rifle and his plow. The numerous buffalo were butchered with an endless avidity by the men who now appeared on the range. As the great herds regularly migrated southward with each winter snows, they were met by the settlers along the lower railway lines and in a brutal commerce were killed in thousands and in millions. The Indians saw this sudden and appalling shrinkage of their means of livelihood. It meant death to them. To their minds, especially when they thought we feared them, there was but one answer to all this. The whites must all be killed. Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Roman Nose, American Horse, Black Kettle, these were the names of the great Indian generals who proved their ability to fight. At times they brought into the open country, which as yet remained unoccupied by the great pastoral movement from the south, as many as 5,000 mounted warriors in one body, and they were well armed and well supplied with ammunition. Those were the days when the Indian agents were carrying on their lists twice as many Indians as actually existed, and received twice as many supplies as really were issued to the tribes. The curse of politics was ours even at that time, and it cost us then as now unestimated millions of our nation's dearest treasure. 
as to the reservations which the Indians were urged to occupy. They left them when they liked. In the end, when they were beaten, all they were asked to do was to return to these reservations and be fed. There were fought in the West from 1869 to 1875 more than 200 pitched actions between the Army and the Indians. In most cases, the white men were heavily outnumbered. The account which the Army gave of itself on scores of unremembered minor fields, which meant life or death to all engaged, would make one of the best pages of our history, could it be written today. The enlisted men of the Frontier Army were riding and shooting men, able to live as the Indians did, and able to beat them at their own game. They were led by army officers whose type had never been improved upon in any later stage of our army itself, or of any army in the world. There are certain great battles which may at least receive notice, although it would be impossible to mention more than a few of the encounters of the great Indian wars on the Buffalo Range at about the time of the Buffalo's disappearance. The Fetterman Massacre in 1866 near Fort Phil Kearney, a post located at the edge of the Bighorn Mountains, was a blow which the army never has forgotten. In a place of 50 feet square lay the bodies of Colonel Fetterman, Captain Brown, and 65 enlisted men. Each man was stripped naked and hacked and scalped, the skulls beaten in with war clubs and the bodies gashed with knives almost beyond recognition with other ghastly mutilations that the civilized pen hesitates to record. This tragedy brought the Indian problem before the country as never before. The hand of the western rancher and trader was implacably against the tribesmen of the plains. The city dweller of the east, with hazy notions of the Indian character, was disposed to urge lenient methods upon those responsible for governmental policy. While the Sioux and Cheyenne Wars dragged on, Congress created, by Act of July 20, 1876, a peace commission of four civilians and three army officers to deal with the hostile tribes. For more than a year, with scant sympathy for the military members, this commission endeavored to remove the causes of friction by amicable conference with the Indian chiefs. The attitude of the army is reflected in a letter of General Sherman to his brother, quote, We have now selected and provided reservations for all of the great roads. All who cling to their old hunting grounds are hostile and will remain so till killed off. We will have a sort of predatory war for years. Every now and then be shocked by the indiscriminate murder of travelers and settlers. But the country is so large and the advantage of the Indians so great that we cannot make a single war and end it. From the nature of things, we must take chances and clean out Indians as we encounter them. End quote. Segregation of the Indian tribes upon reservations seemed to the commission the only solution of the vexing problem. Various treaties were made and others were projected looking toward the removal of the tribesmen from the highways of continental travel. The result was misgiving and increased unrest among the Indians. In midsummer of 1868, forays occurred at many points along the border of the Indian Territory. General Sheridan, who now commanded the Department of the Missouri, believed that a general war was imminent, 
He determined to teach the southern tribesmen a lesson they would not forget. In the dead of winter, our troops marched against the Cheyennes, then in their encampments below the Kansas line. The Indians did not believe that white men could march in weather 40 below zero, during which they themselves sat in their teepees around their fires. But our cavalrymen did march in such weather, and under conditions such as our cavalry perhaps could not endure today. Among these troops was the 7th Cavalry, Custer's Regiment, formed after the Civil War, and it was led by Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer himself, that gallant officer whose name was to go into further and more melancholy history of the Plains. Custer marched until he got in touch with the trails of the Cheyennes, whom he knew to belong to Black Kettle's band. He did not at the time know that below them, in the same valley of the Washita, were also the winter encampments of the Kiowas and the Comanches and the Arapahoes, even a few Apaches. He attacked at dawn of a bleak winter morning, November 27, 1868, after taking the precaution of surrounding the camp, and killed Black Kettle and another chief, Little Rock, and over a hundred of their warriors. Many women and children also were killed in this attack. The result was one which sank deep into the Indian mind. They began to respect the men who could outmarch them and outlive them on the range. Surely, they thought, these were not the same men who had abandoned Forts Phil Kearney, Fort C.F. Smith, and Reno. There had been some mistake about this matter. The Indians began to think it over. The result was a pacifying of all the Indian country south of the Platte. The lower Indians began to come in and give themselves up to reservation life. One of the hardest of pitched battles ever fought with an Indian tribe occurred in September 1868 on the Arickery or South Fork of the Republican River, where General Sandy Forsyth and his scouts for nine days fought over 600 Cheyennes and Arapahoes. These Indians had been committing atrocities upon the settlers of the Saline, the Solomon, and the Republican Valleys, and were known to have killed some 64 men and women at the time General Sheridan resolved to punish them. Forsyth had no chance to get a command of troops, but was allowed to enlist 50 scouts, all first-class hardened frontiersmen. And with this body of fighting men, he carried out the most dramatic battle perhaps ever waged on the plains. Forsyth ran into the trail of two or three large Indian villages, but nonetheless he followed on until he came to the valley of the South Fork. Here the Cheyennes, under the redoubtable Roman nose, surrounded him on the 17th of September. The small band of scouts took refuge on a brushy island some 60 yards from shore and hastily dug themselves in under fire. They stood at bay, outnumbered ten to one, with small prospect of escape, for the little island offered no protection of itself and was in point-blank range of the banks of the river. All their horses were soon shot down, and the men lay in rifle pits with no hope of escape. Roman Nose, enraged at the resistance put up by Forsyth's men, led a band of some 400 of his warriors in the most desperate charge that has been recorded in all of our Indian fighting annals. It was rarely that the Indian would charge at all, 
But these tribesmen, stripped naked for the encounter, and led at first by that giant warrior, came on shouting his defiance, charged in full view, not only once, but three times in one day, and got within a hundred feet of the foot of the island where the scouts were lying. According to Forsyth's report, the Indians came on in regular ranks, like the cavalry of the white men, more than 400 strong. They were met by the fire of repeating carbines and revolvers, and they stood for the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth fire of repeating weapons, and still charged in. Roman Nose was killed at last within touch of the rifle pits against which he was leading his men. The second charge was less desperate, for the Indians lost heart after the loss of their leader. The third one, delivered towards the evening of that day, was desultory. By that time, the bed of the shallow stream was well filled with fallen horses and dead warriors. Forsyth ordered meat cut from the bodies of his dead horses and buried in the wet sand so that it might keep as long as possible. Lieutenant Beecher, his chief of scouts, was killed as also were Surgeon Moores and Scouts Smith, Chalmers, Wilson, Farley, and Day. Seventeen others of the party were wounded, some severely. Forsyth himself was shot three times, once in the head. His left leg was broken below the knee, and his right thigh was ripped up by a rifle ball, which caused him extreme pain. Later, he cut the bullet out of his own leg and was relieved from some part of the pain. After his rescue, when his broken leg was set, it did not suit him, and he had the leg broken twice in the hospital and reset until it knitted properly. Forsyth's men lay under fire under a blazing sun in their holes on the sandbar for nine days, but the Indians never dislodged them, and at last they made off, their women and children beating the death drums and the entire village mourning the unreturning braves. On the second day of the fighting, Forsyth got out two messengers at extreme risk, and at length the party was rescued by a detachment of the 10th Cavalry. The Indians later said that they had in all over 600 warriors in this fight. Their losses, though variously estimated, were undoubtedly heavy. It was encounters such as this which gradually were teaching the Indians that they could not beat the white men, so that after a time they began to yield to the inevitable. What is known as the Baker Massacre was the turning point in the half-century of warfare with the Blackfeet, the savage tribe which preyed upon the men of the fur trade in a long-continued series of robberies and murders. On January 22, 1870, Major E.M. Baker, led by friendly Indians who knew the country, surprised the Blackfeet in their winter camp on the Marias River, just below the border. He, like Custer, attacked at dawn, opening the encounter with a general fire into the teepees. He killed 173 Blackfeet, including very many women and children, as was unhappily the case so often in these surprise attacks. It was deplorable warfare but it ended the resistance of the savage Blackfeet. They have been disposed for peace from that day to this. The terrible revenge which the Sioux and Cheyenne took in the battle which annihilated Custer and his men on the Little Bighorn in the summer of 1876 
the Homeric running fight made by Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, a flight which baffled our best generals and their men for a 110 days over more than 1,400 miles of wilderness. These are events so well known that it seems needless to do more than refer to them. The Nez Perce, in turn, went down forever when Joseph came out and surrendered, saying, quote, From where the sun now stands, I fight against the white man no more forever. End quote. His surrender to fate did not lack its dignity. Indeed, a mournful interest attached to the inevitable destiny of all these Indian leaders, who, no doubt, according to their standards, were doing what men should do and all that men could do. The main difficulty in administering full punishment to such bands was that after a defeat they scattered so that they could not be overtaken in any detailed fashion. After the Custer fight, many of the tribe went north of the Canadian line and remained there for some time. The Modoc War against the warriors of Captain Jack in 1873 was waged in the lava beds of Oregon and it had the distinction of being one of the first Indian wars to be well-reported in the newspapers. We heard a great deal of the long and trying campaigns waged by the army in revenge for the murder of General Camby in his council tent. We got small glory out of that war, perhaps, but at last we hanged the ringleader of the murderers, and the extreme Northwest remained free from that time on. Far in the dry Southwest, where home-building man did not, as yet, essay a general occupation of the soil, the bloodthirsty Apache long waged a warfare which tried the mettle of our army, as perhaps no other tribes have ever done. The Spaniards had fought these Apaches for nearly 300 years, and had not beaten them. They offered $300 each for Apache scalps, and took a certain number of them, but they left all the remaining braves sworn to an eternal enmity. The Apaches became mountain outlaws, whose blood-mad thirst for revenge never died. No tribe ever fought more bitterly, hemmed in and surrounded with no hope of escape. In some instances, they perished literally to the last man. General George Crook finished the work of cleaning up the Apache outlaws only by the use of the trailers of their own people, who sided with the whites for pay. Without the Pima scouts, he never could have run down the Apaches as he did. Perhaps these were the hardest of all the Plains Indians to find and fight. But in 1872, Crook subdued them and concentrated them in reservations in Arizona. Ten years later, under Geronimo, a tribe of the Apaches broke loose and yielded to General Crook only after a prolonged war. Once again, they raided New Mexico and Arizona in 1885-86. This was the last raid of Geronimo. He was then forced by General Miles to surrender, and together with his chief warriors, was deported to Fort Pickens in Florida. In all these savage pitched battles and bloody skirmishes, the surprises and murderous assaults all over the old range, there were hundreds of settlers killed, hundreds also of our army men including some splendid officers. In the Custer fight alone, on the Little Bighorn, the Army lost Custer himself, 13 commissioned officers, and 256 enlisted men killed, with two officers and 51 men wounded. 
a total of 323 killed and wounded in one battle. Custer had in his column about 700 men. The number of the Indians has been variously estimated. They had perhaps 5,000 men in their villages when they met Custer in this, the most heroic and most ghastly battle of the plains. It would be bootless to revive any of the old discussions regarding Custer and his rash courage. Whether in error or in wisdom, he died, and gallantly. He and his men helped clear the frontier for those who were to follow, and the task took its toll. Thus, slowly but steadily, even though handicapped by a vacillating governmental policy regarding the Indians, we muddled through these great Indian wars of the frontier, our soldiers doing their work splendidly and uncomplainingly, such work as no other body of civilized troops has ever been asked to do or could have done if asked. At the close of the Civil War, we ourselves were a nation of fighting men. We were fit and we were prepared. The average of our warlike qualities never has been so high as then. The frontier produced its own pathfinders, its own saviors, its own fighting men. So now the frontier lay ready and waiting for the man with the plow. The dawn of that last day was at hand. And that wraps up Chapter 7 of The Passing of the Frontier by Emerson Howe. It is interesting to hear the perspective of that time. I think this is, in many ways, what Americans were thinking in the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. I've wrestled with how I should conclude this. Should I put any final remarks about how this doesn't conform with modern sensibilities and that type of thing? Um, And I'm just going to let it stand where it is. What have we learned from history? This was published in 1918, while our men were on the fields of Europe, dying in World War I. And those events surely colored the perspective how used in viewing the events of not even 50 years earlier. Well, it certainly is interesting, and it certainly is a part of our history. And again, here at 1001 Stories from the Old West, that's what we're trying to do, is keep this history alive. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.